Just as we uh, are going to get into the word this morning, we're going to have the ushers come forward. They got some Bibles for you. I want to encourage you to grab a Bible this morning as we continue with this series, He Shall Be Called. We're looking at Isaiah chapter 9. If you need a Bible, just put your hand up. Put your hand up. Slip it up. Don't be, don't be afraid. We're going to be going through the word this morning. We're going to be starting at Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7. And as you're receiving a Bible and as you're turning to Isaiah chapter 9, I just want to highlight a few things about this particular prophecy that we started with last week and we're continuing with today. This prophecy isn't just a couple of verses. Okay, this prophecy takes place from Isaiah chapter 7 right through Isaiah chapter 12. And there are a number of different prophecies that are being made in this time frame. And there's two key people or key, if you will, names that are in this prophecy. The sons of Isaiah play a key role in this. And, and really what is being outlined in this prophecy are two very different days. They're very different days. There is the day of darkness that is coming. Okay, Isaiah refers to these days as the day where there was no dawn. Where there is distress, darkness, gloom, and anguish. Not exactly a great prophecy to have to tell people. How many of us here today have ever gone through a day where your soul feels as if there is no hope? Let's be honest here this morning. Anybody? Anybody? Maybe today you don't even want to raise your hand because you find yourself in that place of hopelessness, of anguish, where your soul feels as though it's going to get ripped apart, where your heart feels heavy. There's good news in this prophecy for you today. There's hope in this prophecy for you today. Because while the first son gets a, gets a name that's difficult to swallow, a remnant will survive, or a remnant will return. All right? In other words, bad days are coming in your son's lifetime. You're going to have to go through the dark days of discipline. The second son was to be named Emmanuel, God with us. The interesting part is that you don't actually see Isaiah give that name to his son. Instead, he gives his son the name, the spoil speeds, or the prey hastens. It's not exactly the name you want in the playground. But he names his son this because he realizes that the days of his son, the days that are coming upon the people of Israel are this, they're dark, dark days. But... But there is a day of hope, a son of hope that is coming. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. He is the great light that shines in the darkness. Maybe you feel right now that you're surrounded in darkness. Let me tell you, Jesus wants to be the light. And he came that you might have hope. He met you might have light in your life. This is the son of hope, God with us. And this light shines in the region of Galilee where Jesus ultimately did most of his ministry. He would be born of a virgin in chapter 7, verse 14. He would come from the line of Jesse in 11, verse 1. We see this. Clearly, we are talking about Jesus, the light. The light in the world that we, my friends, have made dark. This is the name that John would give him. 
in the Gospel of John. This is the name that, that the Apostle Paul would also recognize Jesus as. And so let's just consider this. Jesus is our light. Amen? He is our hope. And as we read this, this is the Son that is being talked about. This is Emmanuel, God with us. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders. In other words, friends, Jesus is king. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor and Mighty God, which Kai unearthed for us last week. But he will also be called, what we will focus on this week, Everlasting Father. He is the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Does your heart long for peace? Jesus is going to establish a government where you have perfect, perfect peace. There will be no end to this kingdom. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. From this time forth, from when he came to earth and forevermore. And I love this part. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And he did it, my friends. It wasn't because some, some guy comes in and by his strength he establishes peace. No, no, no. God himself will come. And he, in his zeal, will accomplish this kingdom of peace. Today, as we examine specifically Everlasting Father as a name of Jesus, I got to say that sometimes this seems a little confusing. It certainly felt confusing to the people who are reading this. How can a child be born, okay, have a start, and yet he be called everlasting? We get a hint of this in John chapter 1, if you want to turn there with me. John chapter 1 talks about this light in the darkness and who he is. It says this in verse 1. In the beginning was the word, this is Jesus, Okay. And the word was with God. And the word was God. You're like, wait, what? We're going to get to that in a little bit. He was in the beginning with God. Listen to this. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. All right. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. Light shines. Here it is in the darkness, and the darkness has overcome it. Jesus, even before going to the cross, says, hey, hey, listen, this, this world, disciples, this world is going to be tough. There's going to be trials. There's going to be tribulation. But fear not. Fear not. I have overcome the world. Jesus has overcome the darkest days. He is the light. He is our hope in our dark trials. What do we see in this passage? We see here that the beginning of this little baby is not his beginning. He existed before there was time. He was there in the beginning. In fact, we see this about Jesus, that he was a part of creation. Now, you might not understand what I'm getting at here, because what I'm saying is that Jesus was a part of creating time as we know it. 
You see, we measure time by the sun, the moon, and the stars. We get our minutes, our hours, our days, our weeks, our years from the rotation of the earth, which he spoke by his word into being. Of course, everlasting is the right title. He made time as you and I know it. Now, for you who are, are sitting there going, what? Like, how? Right? Like, how can everlasting time? You're blowing my mind. In fact, I would say this. Even in this, we see him as the triune God. All of this stuff. We're like, how does that make any sense? I want to encourage you this morning. that You should actually take comfort in that. What I mean is this. If a God who is infinite made complete sense to your finite mind, I'd be a little worried. If a God who can speak and the universe, stars come into being, a man can be made from dust on the ground, does it baffle your mind? Then you might not have a big enough view of who God is yet. It's okay if the way he explains himself to us just kind of goes beyond our reason and our understanding. In fact, we should realize that we should expect God to bust out of our boxes every time. He is the everlasting in that manger. But he's also the father? I mean, how does this make sense? How can the child in this prophecy be called the everlasting father? And for us who are like, Super into doctrine, we're like, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. God the Father, God the Son, John, God the Holy Spirit. Three, three in one. Don't you understand? This is, what, this is a three in one situation. This is not something where they're all just one. This is, this is actually a verse that is often used to condone a viewpoint that, that God is actually just purely one, there are no three beings. He just shows himself in three different ways. It's called modalism. You're like, thank you for a big word. I can just tuck that in the back of my, back of my pocket. No. Modalism is this idea that here comes Clark Kent. All right, he goes into, this, into the phone booth. Boom, I'm Superman. Right? It's like Jesus is like, boom, I'm the Holy Spirit. All right? Boom, I'm the Father. I want to show that to you. Boom, I'm the Son. He's all, he's all of these, he just shows us different ways, but that doesn't make any sense with Scripture. And other, otherwise, Jesus is on the cross saying, Father, forgive them. He's just talking to himself. Or he's in the garden right before he goes to the cross, begging that he take the cup from him, and he's just, he's just having a schizophrenic moment, right? Even in chapter 11 of this, of this passage, of this section of scripture in Isaiah 11, you see that the Holy Spirit comes upon Jesus. The Trinity is at work right in this passage that we are talking about today. This section, this prophecy. In fact, in the beginning, God wasn't just being schizophrenic when he said, let us make man in our image. No, he's three having a perfect relationship. With three different persons in one, the triune God. And just before we get a little bit too serious, I want to share some fun facts about this, okay? It's very appropriate for this time of year, okay? Santa Claus, St. Nicholas, reportedly smacked a guy on the side of the face 
at the Council of Nicaea because he believed in what we called modalism. All right? So this time of year, if you want to have a fun conversation with your kids, you can say, hey, 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 kids, 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 kids. Santa doesn't do that whole coal thing. But if you have bad doctrine, he will get rosy cheeks and he will walk across the place and he will smack you around. Okay? And, and if you share that story, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this, that you can also expect that little Johnny's wish list might have a commentary of the book of John or a Bible on it next year. Okay? But this idea of, of, of Jesus being a part of the triune God is something that is to be taken very seriously. And it was taken very seriously right from the beginning of the church of God. Even Santa Claus got a little bit flustered when you try to say something other than the truth about Jesus Christ. While we're talking about doctrine, good doctrine, bad doctrine, we need to understand that this passage also does something else. It makes it very clear that Jesus is God. Okay? This passage, this prophecy flies in the face of the Jew, of the Muslim, of the Hindu, of the Jehovah's Witness that tries to tell you something about Jesus that is not true. It leaves no room for Jesus as this guru or rabbi or a prophet or, or just some good dude, some example to mankind. It's claiming here that he is God. God with us is the name of Emmanuel. If that wasn't enough, mighty God is his name. If that wasn't enough, everlasting Father is his name. Christian, doctrine might be boring to you. Even this morning, you may be like, okay, I understand. I believe this. Hear me, hear me. Doctrine is important because it's the difference. It's the difference between death and life. If you believe something about Jesus that he is not, you have no salvation in the name of Jesus. Has eternal ramifications. Jesus is God with us. That is good doctrine. He is the everlasting Father. This title highlights that for us that this babe in a manger just wasn't a baby, wasn't just a man. In this, in this baby is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. In this baby is the everlasting God. Do you, do you understand? We sing, oh, come, let us adore him. We need to understand who we're adoring here is not just a baby. They go, oh, isn't he cute? Isn't he, isn't he adorable? No, no, rather we are to have awe-inspired reverence and we are to come as the shepherds did and bow before our King of kings and Lord of lords, the creator who is holding you together, my friends, this morning at every breath. He is in that manger. There's no other appropriate way to sing Christmas carols other than as true songs of worship. There's no other way of looking at this babe in a manger as anything else but our everlasting God who's come to this world to shine light into the darkness, to give salvation to mankind who without him have no hope. 
So before we go any further, we need to take this time right now and we need to declare the truth about who it is that we are worshiping this time of year. And we need to call our souls with our voices saying, saying, this is the everlasting God. He is my hope. He is my light. He is my salvation. That's why he's come, my friends. He came bringing good news. Let's rise. Let's sing to our everlasting God. As you're getting your seat, I would like you to turn in, in, uh, to the Gospel of John. We're going to go into chapter 14. As you're turning there, I just want to uh, continue with this idea as Jesus as the everlasting Father. And, and Kai did a good job of explaining to us last week the idea that the way we see names, it might be a bit different than the way a Jewish person in this time would have seen names. We name our kids based off of a cool name or a specific letter that it starts with. You know, in my family, we got all K's, right, for our kids. But no, that's not the way a Jewish person would have thought of the concept of names. They would have meant it as, as something that says something about their attributes or their person or, their, or the time in which they lived. All right? We love, we love Eric, don't we? We love Eric, don't we? Yeah, we love Eric. Yeah, it's all good, brother. Enrique, I call him. That's just speaking about names. Jesus even came that we might know, we might know the Father. In John 1, 18, it says that Jesus has made him known to us. All right, so eternal Father as a name is, is saying, hey, Jesus is going to be like his Father in heaven. And so as we read John 14, we just read it with that in mind. It says this in verse 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In other words, if you want to be with the Father in heaven, there's only one name under all of heaven by which you must be saved. And that is who? That is Jesus. Jesus said this to him. And if you had known me, okay, Listen to this. You would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip, one of his disciples, is like, what? He says this. Lord, show us the father, and that is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority. What I'm saying isn't on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me and does his works. Believe in me. Believe me. I am in the Father. And the Father is in me. Or else believe on the account of the works themselves. What I'm doing is displaying the Father's authority over all of creation. What I'm saying is displaying the Father's authority. Jesus is said to be a, a person the way he taught. People are like, man, he teaches with such authority. You see here that Jesus is like the Father. So much so that it's, it wouldn't be bad to say whoever has seen me has seen the Father. 
We could literally spend all day going through the different attributes in the way that Jesus has shown the Father to us, but I want to focus in on two broad attributes, one of which is mentioned right here in verse 10. It says this, we, when we see the Jesus, he's like the Father in his authority. To a Jewish person reading the name Eternal Father, it already says something about who this baby is. That he has the authority that comes with the title Father. And in fact, some scholars would say that, that, that you could also take this name and say he is Father of the Everlasting. In other words, this is something that says something about who Jesus is in the eternal kingdom. He is the first. He is the top and this doesn't maybe make sense to us when we hear the word father, but in a Jewish patriarchal society, when you take on the name father, it comes with all of the authority that goes along with that in that society. We see this, this manifest in this name, eternal father or everlasting father. We also see this when, when the New Testament gives the name to Jesus, the firstborn. If you have your Bibles, just flip over to Colossians, Colossians chapter 1. Uh, as you're turning there, you need to understand that firstborn in a Jewish patriarchal society is kind of like, hey, the authority I have, I pass down to my firstborn. And it's an extension of the Father's authority. And you're going to see it on full display here in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. It says this, he, this is Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God. There we go again. He's the likeness of the Father to us. The firstborn of all creation. Now you need to understand that's not saying that he had a beginning before all of creation. It means that's his title over all creation. And it's going to expound upon that. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. Visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He's over all these things. He's over all these things. And he is the head of the body. Okay? The church. He is the beginning. Here it is again. The firstborn from the dead. We know this is a title because Lazarus was raised from the dead before Jesus was. Okay? This is his title. He is over all who will be raised from the dead. He's over all of us, friends, if we have faith in Jesus Christ, that we will be risen again to his eternal kingdom. Amen? He's over all of us as firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God, that's the Father, was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. When he was raised up, we are all underneath him. He is our firstborn. That's his title of authority. And this is crazy, the amount of authority that is being put upon him here. He's saying, hey, hey, if you didn't get this, everything's under Jesus' authority. Now this plays out in our life, friends. What is this saying? This has massive implications. That means that, friends, all of us, Jesus is our authority. He is our king. He is first over all of us. A lot of times we put our hope in other man-made kings and man-made authorities. And we hope that somehow they're going to usher in a kingdom of utopia, of peace. People who are putting our hope in the wrong hope. 
and then the wrong authority and the wrong king because they have no ability to address the real problem that exists in this world. It's the problem of our selfish hearts. But if you will give him authority in your life, if you will give your heart over to him, he will give you a new heart and you can be welcomed into his eternal kingdom where there really will be peace. The thing that you're hoping for out of every person that you vote for, every campaign that you join, Jesus is the only one that can bring this. He's not only our authority, friend, but he's also your authority. This means if you want to approach Jesus in relationship with him, you need to identify him as authority. You see, relationships hinge on treating people as they are, not as who we wish they would be, but as who they are. You can't go to your boss at work and treat your boss as if they're your child or your best friend. For example, it's not okay to say to your boss, how many times have I told you? Right? That isn't going to go so well, right? What about your boss texts you while you're at work and you respond tomorrow, right? Oh, sorry, been busy. Smiley face. That's not going to fly, right? Because that's not relating to your boss rightly. In the same way, if you approach Jesus as anything other than your ultimate authority, you would not be relating to him rightly. Hear me, there's only one way to approach the manger. There's only one way to approach the cross rightly, and that's on our knees before our king. That's on our knees before the Lord of all lords. Christian, this brings up a question I have for you. What's the attitude that you have towards your relationship with Christ? I ask this because, what's up, Jesus? Can you do this, 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 and this for me? Peace isn't going to fly. I ask this, and what I'm saying is that not now, Jesus. Netflix has a new show on. Doesn't suffice. You can't go to Jesus and say, I don't want to do that, Jesus. Tell me something I want to hear. Because, friends, you're not relating to him rightly. That's not how you approach the one who has ultimate authority. Examine yourself, friend. If he is not the Lord of all in your life, he may not be Lord at all. Jesus displays this authority of God, the Father. But he also shows us another side of the Father. He shows us the affection of the Father. Jesus is like the Father in his affection. In fact, even in him coming, he is the Father's affection on display before us. This idea as an affectionate Father is something that Jesus camped on. He taught his disciples to pray, Abba, Daddy, Father. But it's something that the Jews kind of, I don't know. They're okay with him being mighty, but fatherly? Fatherly, fatherly in affection towards us. And I got to say, there's some of us here today that struggle with that concept of God being fatherly in affection towards us. Now, there might be a number of reasons in your past or your present 
for you to struggle with that concept. But what I want to say here is this. Any earthly father, whether present or absent, will never, hear me, will never live up to what you're hoping for out of them. Because in every single person, in every single person, God has built a desire for him as father. And there's only one heavenly father, only one father that can live up to that desire that exists in all of us. And he is, friend, he is the good, good father. Maybe you'd still, like, okay, he's a good, good father, but I don't understand his love towards me. How can, tell me, John, how can I sense the love of God towards me? You can sense it if you've ever sensed Jesus' love towards you. In fact, Jesus says in John 15, verse 9, he says, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Do you get it? If you can wrap your mind around Jesus' love for you, he is simply displaying the love of the Heavenly Father for you. So even if you've never had that perfect or even an honorable earthly father, you can understand the love of God, the Father, through Jesus Christ, who is representing that love, that affection on his behalf towards us. How does this prophecy highlight this idea that Jesus is the affection of the Father If we read in Isaiah 12, verses 1 and 2, this is the very end of the prophecy. It says this about Jesus and him as the coming one. You will say in that day that Jesus comes, I give thanks to you, O Lord. I give thanks. Why? For though you were angry with me, your anger turned away, that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. God is my salvation. I will trust and I will not be afraid. In other words, in other words, the context of this entire prophecy is, hey, bad things are coming because the Lord's got to discipline you. Let me just say as a father, that is one of the hardest things about parenting. It would have been hard for the heavenly father to do this. He had, though, listen, he had to discipline his people's rebellion because of what he wanted for them. See, the rebellion was killing us eternally and separating us from him and from his love. He disciplined us, hit us that we might come back to him. In my life, this is difficult. It's, it's so hard to discipline, to make my child cry. But without it, listen, I'd be ruining my child. Proverbs 13, 24 says this. Whoever spares the rod hates his son. If you don't discipline your children, it's an act of hate. But he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. There's only one reason the father disciplines with the rod of correction. That if you look through this prophecy, you'll find throughout. It's because he loves. He wants you to return to him. In the same way, God loves us enough to train us away from the things that are killing us. Jesus is seen wielding the rod of correction out of his mouth in Isaiah chapter 11 when the Spirit of the Lord was upon him. Jesus manifests, even through his words of authority, the Father's discipline 
that, that he might have all nations come to him for salvation. Because Jesus just doesn't, doesn't manifest God's love and discipline. He manifests the Father's love and his comfort. It says right there in the passage, that you might comfort me. Let me tell you, as a father, even though I discipline my child and it hurts my heart to have to discipline my child, it's sweet when they come and allow you to embrace them and you to be their comfort after the discipline. It's a sweet thing for a father to have. But I'll tell you this, it hurts. It hurts when they shrug you away. They don't want you to comfort them. If Jesus is literally God's motion to comfort us, we've got to realize that the Heavenly Father is mourning every time that the people turned away from his comfort. Friend, don't turn away from his comfort through Jesus Christ. The Father's love propels him to discipline, to comfort, and also propels him to save. God is my salvation. Friend, this is the joy that we have this season. Okay? Though there was dark times, all right, and though you may be in the kingdom of darkness right now, he has come that you might have light and might have life eternal. He has come, your salvation. He wants to be that. Will you trust and not be afraid? It says this, for the Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. With joy, you will draw from the, wa- from the wells of salvation and will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be known in all the earth. Shout, sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great. Listen, in your midst, Emmanuel is the Holy One of Israel. Great is the Lord. Why? Why such excitement? Why should this time of year be a time of celebration? Why is this holy day, this holiday, reason to rejoice like that? It's because God has become our salvation. His light has shone into the darkness and he wants to usher us to himself through Jesus the Christ to restore us to him both now and forevermore. That is a tremendous act of love. And that is the only act that gives us hope. What will it be like with him? Just want to end with this, really. Revelation chapter 21. What's it, what's it like? What is, what is our restoration to the Father? How does this work? Well, the end of all days, this is what it looks like. Revelation 21, verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. We've been restored to him through Jesus Christ. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. In other words, we get to be with him in this kingdom. And that's good news. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. You see his comfort? And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain. Nor pain. For the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. 
also said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. The zeal of the Lord did it, my friends. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. That's Jesus, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. And the one who conquers will have this heritage, this heritage, this hope, this home. And I will be his God and he will be my son, says Jesus. Says Jesus. He reflects to us the Father's salvation. What I just read is what every heart here longs for. You long for the day there's no more pain. No more reason for mourning. What I'm saying is that Christmas, Jesus in the manger, was the day in which the light shone into the darkness of our hopelessness. We have that hope. We have this hope that everything will be made new. Do you want it? Do you want it? Is that what you want? Then my child, what's your response to that? Isaiah 12 verse two says, trust him. Trust the father. Trust his discipline. Trust his love towards you. This brings us to the question today. It's the same question Isaiah presents in Isaiah 7, verse 9. Will you have faith? Will you have faith in the coming Emmanuel? It says this in Isaiah 7, 9. If you are not firm in faith, then you will not be firm at all. Will you welcome the Lord's comfort through Jesus Christ by placing your faith in Jesus He is the light of the world that, friends, we have made dark. He is our only hope. He is our only salvation. There's not waiting for another one to come. He has already come. You see, every one of us has spurned our Father's authority. We've rebelled. We are completely worthy of his wrath. And our faithlessness, listen, in Revelation 21, 8, is reason for us to be cast into the place of his wrath and hell. But the father did not want that, friends. In his grace, he sought to save us. He sent his son to show himself to us and to welcome us back to himself through his blood. That baby in the manger is God with us. He's come to make a way for us to know his comfort and to know his salvation the sacrificial lamb who died on Good Friday and he rose on Easter he took the wrath of God upon himself and nailed it to the cross and buried it in the ground and he rose that we can know that in him if we place our faith in him we can be a part of his eternal kingdom of peace see he wants our everlasting life with him friends let's bow our heads Father, Lord, we praise you for your, for your love towards us. Your affection towards us through Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you that he, he told us the truth. But he also told us of your hope for us, your love towards us, your comfort for us through himself. 
Lord, I pray for those who are wrestling with this concept of Jesus as the one true Savior, the only way to heaven, to being with you, the Father. I pray right now you'd work on their hearts. You'd save them, I ask. If you're a person who's sitting here this morning and you want to accept that salvation made through Jesus Christ, that offer that comes from the Father through his Son, I just want to encourage you, if you want that, if you, if you believe, if you trust, pray along with me. Pray in your hearts, Father, I have sinned. I've gone my own way. I've ignored your authority and your love. Thank you for loving me enough to go to the cross, to die in my place. Thank you for your forgiveness available through Jesus Christ. Thank you for his perfect sacrifice and how it makes it possible for me to approach you. Father, today, I want to say I believe in Jesus. I trust your salvation. God, save me from myself, from my sin. I surrender to you. Be my Lord. Be my King today and forever. Lead me, lead me, lead me by your Spirit, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.